We're doing Colossians this semester. And um, tonight, something interesting happens actually in the letter. And uh, I kind of want to give y'all a tool for reading Paul's letters before we read this verse. Um, In Paul's letters, most often, there's there's kind of a big framework he works in. Namely, what he does is he uses this tool. Now, these are the technical terms, but then we're going to explain them. Um, He talks about the indicative in the gospel and the imperative. And those words are uh, are big words. And what I mean by that is the indicative is the state or who we are in Christ Jesus. And he talks about what Christ has done and who Jesus is and all the blessings that we have in Jesus. And that usually takes place in the first half of his letters. And then you'll notice when you read Paul's letters, there's more practical application towards the end. And that's the imperative, the commands that Paul gives. And there's a very intentional reason he has the indicative and then the imperative. The indicative is this is who you are in Christ. This is what you have in Christ. This is what Christ has done. And out of that indicative, out of the truths of the gospel, those preceding and those coming first, then come the imperatives, the call to Christian living. And what happens in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, is that twist takes place in the letter. Paul, for the first two chapters, has been going through the excellencies of Christ and all that he's done and the blessings that we have in Him. And now we get to chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, and we see that twist, that indicative uh, twisting into the imperative, who we are in Christ and now how we are called to live in light of that. And I want to make one other remark with regard to that. If you think about it, the indicative coming before the imperative, what we have in Jesus coming before how we are called to live in Jesus, is the exact opposite of the way all of American culture is set up. In this culture, we live in a meritocracy. You have to do in order to get. You've got to make the right grades to get the right scholarship, to get in the right school, make the right grades there to get in the right grad school, get the right job, and then make enough money and be successful there so you can buy the right house so you can get the right retirement. You don't get until you actually do it first. What Paul is demonstrating here is one of the fundamental truths of the gospel, that in fact the gospel is the exact opposite. God gives, and out of that we are transformed. Our lives are changed. In America, we are driven by fear of failure. You won't get unless you do the right things on the front end. In the gospel, it's the exact opposite. God actually drives with love and with kindness and with compassion. He offers freely himself. And from that, who we are and how we live is transformed. This is the twist in Paul's letter. This is where the letter changes in a lot of ways from the indicative to the imperative. Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, right? He's, he's making a statement. He's planting his flag right there. The letter's turning. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, so walk in Him, rooted, built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Dear Lord, one of the hardest things for me to understand about Your Gospel is... Um, how we, our lives are transformed, how we are called into obedience by grace. Because so oftentimes, I, I want to believe it's the, my, my will and my duty and my effort that I'm sanctified, that I live into holiness, dear God. But I pray now that you would impress upon our hearts and our minds the sweet delight 
that you change us by grace. Dear God, teach us from your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Question. Can I open it up? Uh, don't raise your hands on this one. Have any of all ever entered into that most often a dating relationship um, where y'all finally found out you liked each other, you finally articulated that now y'all are dating, you had the DTR, and um, the, the days and the weeks afterwards are just thrilling. They're like exhilarating. Like every text is like the highlight of your day. Every phone call. The best is when you don't expect to see them and then you do see them across campus and you're just like, you're giddy with joy, right? And then the first moments, the first days, the first weeks of that relationship are really just electric and they're amazing. And then what most often happens to most of our relationships is it's not so much that the relationship sours, it just kind of grows into kind of normalcy or kind of a kind of livable staleness. You know, that giddiness only lasts for a while and then it settles down and our relationship just kind of becomes normal and we kind of oftentimes wonder, like, where did that passion go? Where did that energy go? Where did that excitement go? And um, I suspect many of us in this room have had a similar experience um, in different ways. And I bring that up because in some ways I think that's a very common experience in the Christian life. Um, you've had one or two or three or many moments where the grace of God really powerfully became apparent to you. And maybe you were converted. Maybe you, you recommitted to Christ or something like that. And, um, and in those moments, it was exciting. And in those moments, you had a great zeal for the gospel. In those moments, those were the times when you actually thought about talking to other people about Jesus and maybe even did it. Because there was such thrill, there was so much excitement. There was relief for the first time in your life. The first time you experienced that grace, like finally the burden of your sins had been lifted. The guilt had been lifted and it's sweet. And there's this sense of freedom now. And there's this sense of gratitude and there's a sense of joy. Your worship felt so much fuller in those moments when you tasted that grace for the first time. Or when you tasted it again after having kind of not had it for a while. And then what happens? I think there's something similar that happens in our dating relationships that happens in our relationship with Christ. What happened? Where did it go? Why are we here killing ourselves on, uh, on a Tuesday night in the middle of campus trying to feel like we feel these songs when we're really not? Where does that zeal, where's the joy, where's the relief, where's the freedom, where does it go? And what I think tonight is actually in the letter, in Paul's letter to Colossians, is that actually he begins to help us understand why we so oftentimes actually lose that joy and lose that zeal. And I think it's really this. We know that we're saved by grace. And in those moments we feel that salvation, we feel that grace, and we feel all those feelings that come along with it. And it is sweet. But we don't know how we walk out of that from that moment on. We know that we're justified the moment where God declares our sins pardoned and declares us as righteous in His sight. That is a moment of sweet grace. But then our sanctification, the Christian life that moves on past that, where we grow into holiness and grow into Christ-likeness, we don't know if that comes by grace or by works. And oftentimes the way we live our life is actually that we got saved by grace, but we really maintain or we're responsible for developing our own holiness by works. And that's really, in a lot of ways, the fundamental uh, thing that Paul is dealing with 
in this letter. Namely that we're saved by grace and then we're really kind of sanctified by boxes. By a list of things to check off. And that's why he says, therefore, having declared the excellencies of Christ for two chapters, he says, therefore, remember how you received Christ Jesus. That's the way you walk in Him. The way you are saved is also the way you continue to live. And what I want us to see tonight is what it looks like when we try to live out our sanctification by works. And then, in fact, what it looks like when instead we walk or we are sanctified by grace. I think this is one of the greatest conundrums of the Christian life. How is it that God's grace is responsible for our lives getting transformed? And until we understand that, we will try to transform our lives by works. And that really comes out in two different ways. There are two different reasons we do that. You see them on your outline. The first one is, we don't feel like Jesus has done enough. We try to sanctify ourselves by works, and we don't, we're not going to articulate Jesus hasn't done enough. But the reason we do it is because undergirding all of our actions and all of our box checking off is the feeling that, God, that Jesus hasn't done enough. And what it feels like a lot of times in the Christian life is like Jesus gave us like a two-year free trial membership to like the Salvation of the Month Club. And then after two years, we're responsible for picking up the subscription and paying it off. He gave us a free ride for a while, but now we're responsible for holding it together. He gave us salvation, but He doesn't have the capacity to hold on to us for the rest of our lives. And so we've got to check off boxes because checking off boxes is a way to say we've drawn lifelines between us and Jesus in case He can't hold on to me. Our works are an insurance policy to cover over any deficiencies of Jesus' work at the cross. This is revealed in our good day, bad day theology. One of the most interesting kind of phenomenons I've encountered, and and it is a phenomenon in my own life, is how many times we think the grades we get in class are directly related to our spiritual performance. Right? How many times we've thought, I did poorly in this class because of my spiritual performance. God has withheld blessing here from me because I didn't act the right way. That, that kind of thinking is, Jesus hasn't done enough to secure God's blessing and favor for me. I've got to ensure my spiritual performance. I've got to ensure my spiritual security by working hard, by checking off the boxes. Otherwise, God's not going to give me good things. And that reveals we don't feel like Jesus' work at the cross is enough. And we're responsible for securing and maintaining His favor. And y'all, that's tyranny. It's not the grace of the gospel. I mean, the question is, does God love you on the weeks that you go to church more than on the weeks that you don't go to church? Does God love you? um, Does Jesus love you more on the weeks that you read the Bible more or less? What gets blessing from God if you read the Bible for five minutes during the middle of the day for an hour and a half early in the morning? Is it better if you're reading the Schofield Bible, which is kind of lame, or the ESV Study Bible, which is much richer? Is it okay to study it? Like, it's got to love you more if you study it intently or if you just kind of gloss over it with sentimentality. And see, we concoct this system where we feel like God's withholding favor and waiting to see if we're doing it the right way and He's not in. He's going to only give us favor if we do it the right way. Jesus gave us salvation, but it's our responsibility to maintain the favor and the blessing of God. And see, this is the problem with that kind of thinking is 
as long as our hope is in our works, we're never going to feel secure. We're going to have the same feeling our entire life. And so what we'll do is we'll continue to add boxes to check off because there are never going to be enough boxes that you can check off that will make you feel like you've made God happy. We'll want something to do so we can say, see, I did that. I did it right. I did it right. I checked off the box. Because, and we need those boxes because we don't believe Jesus can handle us, that He can sustain us, that He can change us, that He can hold on to us. We believe that we are serious Christians because of what we do instead of because of what Jesus did. And you see, the focus then in that mentality is on us and not Christ. We don't believe Jesus has done enough. And if you've ever been to a church that has a very high liturgy, a lot of times you'll see in the liturgy there will be a confession of sin and then there will be an assurance of pardon where the church will kind of uh, corporately confess sin and then you'll individually confess sin. Most of you all have been in a church setting where you've done this, familiar with this. And then there's this thing called assurance of pardon. And if we believe that we really maintain our salvation by works, I would suggest that sometimes we're really nervous about the assurance of pardon. You'll hear things like Romans 10, 9. uh, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And the minister says that from the pulpit and gives an assurance. And I would suggest if we're living by works, when we hear that, we really think, really? We wonder at it instead of being assured at it. We're afraid that Jesus hasn't done enough. But the other thing is, is we hate freedom. We actually hate the freedom of the gospel. Paul tells, tells us elsewhere, like in Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not again submit to the yoke of slavery. The yoke of slavery is sanctification and actually even justification by works. And Paul's saying, no, 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 you're free from that kind of thinking. Why are you submitting to that yoke of slavery? I'll tell you why, because we love it. If we can check off boxes, if we can look at our day and say, I ordered my day and I fulfilled my responsibilities and I didn't watch the wrong movies and I dated the right way and I had the right kind of schooling, then I did it right. And that slavery is really securing. And faith is scary. Living by law feels really good. Living by faith is really scary because living by faith is resting in that assurance of pardon that when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, they're forgiven. And it doesn't change. When Jesus says you're righteous before God, you're righteous before God. It never changes. Living in that is scary. Living by a daily box-checking lifestyle is very comforting. And we love that slavery, and we hate the freedom of the gospel. One of the things we're also afraid of is we're afraid that, okay, if the gospel's really that free, then people are going to abuse the grace. And the, new, the Bible, God sees that criticism coming. He addresses it in Romans 6, where, um, where Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we con- to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Grace is not an excuse for sin. In Jude 4, he calls them who pervert the grace of God into immorality. He says they are godly and they are condemned. God sees that reaction we have. If if it's really this free, if it's really true that Jesus does all this and it's free and it's secure, then people will abuse that grace to just say, oh, well, thanks for the grace and I'm going to do what I want. And you see, the wrong response to that nervousness that we have about that, the wrong response is, okay, well, we've got to put 
law around the grace. We've got to protect grace from people that would abuse it. So we've got to put a, a fence of law around the grace. You've got to do the right things to get to grace, which, of course, then it's no longer grace. The wrong response to people might abuse grace if it's really that free is to reject grace and rely on works. If we allow ourselves the kind of rest and freedom that Jesus offers, we might become lazy. But are we supposed to supplant that grace or guard that grace with the law? By no means. And in fact, the Bible recognizes if you think grace is an excuse for sin, it's you've never actually experienced the grace of God. Because when you understand the kind of love that He's shown us, you don't long for sin anymore. And actually, your heart gets changed. The way Steve Brown said it is, the problem is not that we've made the gospel too good. In fact, the problem is that we have not made it good enough. I think we are scared to death of how good the gospel is. And we're much more comfortable in the bonds of our slavery to works than we are in the freedom that Jesus gives in the gospel. Paul warns the church at Galatia, one of his sternest warnings in his letters, he says, O oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? But by the flesh means by human effort. Gospel is really that free. It's really that expansive. We're scared to death of the freedom Jesus purchased. And we really want to check off some boxes so that we can feel secure because we're scared of being secure in Him. And as long as we believe we're really sanctified by works, that our Christian life is lived out by human effort instead of by grace, there are three things that really kind of happen. They're listed on your sheet um, or in the wrong order. The first thing is fear dominates in our heart. Because we're always going to wonder, have we done enough? There are going to be these spiritual giants that stand out kind of in front of us in Christian maturity and we'll always look at them and say, he's checking off better boxes, he's checking off more boxes, am I doing enough? We're always going to be looking for extra boxes to check off, the ones that we can add. We're never going to know if we've done enough. And then eventually what happens in our fear, we actually become liars. Because we've been following Jesus for so long, or at least claiming to follow Jesus for so long, that now we don't feel like we have an excuse for not checking off some of those boxes that we keep not checking off. And so we begin to deceive everybody else about the reality of our lives. We're tyrannized by the super holy people. And they always make us feel like less than as long as we live by and believe that our security in our life is in our works. And the reason why we're always going to feel insecure in that lifestyle is because our works are less than. If we believe that we maintain God's favor by keeping them, we always live in fear. But it's not just we live in fear, we also develop a sense of pride at the same time. Because what happens when we develop our list of boxes that everybody else has got to do, I go to prayer groups, I go to small groups, I go to the right church, I go, this, I go twice on Sundays, I don't watch these kind of movies, I dance this way or don't dance this way, I listen to this kind of music, I was schooled this way or I was schooled this way, whatever it is. I went on mission trips for us people in here, for you know reformed people, it's our theology, I have the right kind of theology. Maybe it's the political party we associate with, whatever our set of boxes 
are that mark us as a mature Christian, they give us the capacity to look at other people and say, y'all aren't doing it. And that's an enticing place to stand. Finger pointing is fine. makes us feel successful as a Christian because we can look at other people and say, I got more boxes checked off than you. And Jesus speaks harshly to Pharisees in Matthew 23 that are doing exactly the same thing. When he says, they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and they lay those burdens on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move their finger. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. When we communicate to the world as a group of Christians that the way you enter the kingdom of heaven is by doing the right things, we are closing the kingdom of heaven to ourselves and to the world. Jesus didn't come to crush the smoldering wick. He came to proclaim freedom to slaves, not to enslave free people. And, but so often that's the way we communicate Christianity to the outside world. That it's a set of rules that takes life instead of a Savior who gives life. The pride that comes with trying to grow into holiness by our works does the opposite of true gospel holiness. It stops evangelism. It stops being a blessing to the world. It excludes people from the people of God. People in their pursuit to not get dirty retreat from the world, which is exactly the opposite of what Jesus did. He walked into the world and He got dirty in order to save the world. In our prideful pursuit of holiness by works, we become ungracious and we become sectarian and we build fences and we become mean-spirited and we become the holier-than-thou stereotype that we hate, but the world has of Christians. In some ways, here's the question. What do you think about people who don't know Jesus? What do you think about immoral people who don't know Jesus? What is your instinct when you see them on campus? Not now we're in Bible study when we all have pious thoughts. I mean when you're sitting at lunch and you see people walk by and you know who they are because of the way they walk and the way they dress. What do you think of them? Do you think you're better than them? I do. To my own shame, I do. And I judge people. It's my pride and it's my fear trying to say, Britain, there's something about you that makes you specifically more valuable to God, and it's wrong. We're fearful and we're proud, but lastly, there's a, there's a horrific, ironic tragedy that takes place. Because one of the things we do when we, turn those, uh, when, we, when we turn the Christian life into a series of boxes is we actually take real Christian duties we're called to things that were intended to be fountains of life, the way by which God nourishes us and confirms His grace for us, and we turn them into heavy duties instead of delights. Because we get more focused on whether or not we prayed a lot today and we prayed about the right things instead of the person we prayed to. We get more focused on whether or not we read the Bible today and if we can articulate what we just read rather than the person whose word we're reading. We focus more on whether or not I went to church this week to check off my box as opposed to the fact that the thing we get to do at church is hear God's covenant promises and hear His faithfulness and His grace oriented toward us and then explode in song in response to the things that He has done on our behalf. What we're more concerned with is do we check the box off? We approach those things as burdensome duties now instead of sweet delights. I mean, when Elizabeth, when we dated early on, we had a lot of 
email interaction. I have all our emails saved. When Elizabeth sent me one of those emails, do I open up the email and think, I've got to make Elizabeth happy. I'm going to read this email. No. It'd be a horrible way to date. <laughs> but that's the way we relate to God. Oh, he has his Bible. I've got to read it. No, I read Elizabeth's emails in the same way, in the same way that we're really called to Scripture. It's a delight to hear what God has done for us. As long as we believe we're sanctified by our own effort, Jesus will always feel inadequate, will always be insecure, will hate freedom, will be proud, will be fearful, and all the things that are supposed to be delights will be burdens. But Paul, in this turning point in the letter to Colossians, tells us, begins to kind of unfold the picture of sanctification by grace. When he says, like we said at the beginning, when you, just as you received Christ, that sweet moment where grace was precious to you because you saw your sin as dark and you saw God's holiness as high and beautiful and unattainable by you and you saw that Jesus was the one that came in and paid the price for your sins and restored things between you and God, filled in the gap. That, the way you received Him, is the way you walk in Him. It is the way you walk in Him. He doesn't, God, Jesus doesn't just save us and then leave us to work out our lives apart from Him. Even when Paul uses that language, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, what does he immediately say afterwards? He says, for it is God who is at work within you. That time, that sweet time of grace, or those times, hopefully, those are also the ways in which you walk. Your salvation began with total dependence on Christ and your salvation and your sanctification continue in total dependence on Christ. And that's how we are nourished and that's how we are grown in His grace. That's how we walk. The beauty of the gospel becomes more apparent. It's what Soren said at the beginning. When times are dark, what we need is actually the gospel again. There's not this next level. There's not, well, you got Jesus, now let's move on. The wonder of God's mercy and forgiveness more and more takes our breath away. That's what sanctification looks like. I heard Sinclair Ferguson years ago actually preach on um, Romans 6, not in the current Roman series. Um, he hasn't been doing it that long. But um, he talked about, he said, do you remember those times where you, he, he was reflecting on himself? He said, you know, I've been a Christian for X number of years. And he said, but ever since I came to faith in Jesus, there have been those times where someone preached the gospel so clearly and where the Holy Spirit was so clearly at work that I felt like I became a Christian again. And he reflected on it. He said, I hope that feeling never stops coming. And I think there's the picture of sanctification by grace in what he's saying right there. So this is what Paul is getting at. We're rooted which is a one-time event that happened in the past. We started based in Christ, but we are also built up in Him, the ongoing things of being built up and established in Christ. Just as you are taught, the message hasn't changed. The secret key to the Christian life has always been, is, and will always continue to be who Jesus is and what He has done on behalf of His people. The way Tim Keller says it is, the key to the ongoing Christian life is that you are more sinful, selfish, and hateful than you could ever imagine. But in Jesus, you are more loved, you are more forgiven, you are more accepted, you are more secure than you would ever dare hope. And it's the reality of that principle of grace as it breaks into our hearts more and more that we're transformed by the gospel. 
by way of illustration, if y'all, I, this show's not as in favor as it was several years ago, but Antiques Roadshow, are you familiar with this? Yeah. Um, an <laughs> um, Antiques Roadshow, you know, people come in like, you know, dude with his overalls on and his John Deere hat brings this urn in that he like found under some pizza boxes in his basement and kind of wanders up there and they hand it to an antique expert and it's, this is on TV. It's actually an interesting show. And one of the things that interesting that happens in that show is, you know, guy hands this urn, they ask him, oh, where'd you find it? I don't know, it's a piece of junk and, um, and all this kind of stuff. And the guy, the, you know, the antique dealer looks at it and says like, well, this urn actually held George Washington's ashes for 73 years in the White House and, da, 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 and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, the estimated, how much do you think this urn is worth? And the guy's like, I don't know, you know. I found it at a pawn shop for 25 cents, and they're like, the estimated value of this urn is like $175,000. Here's the question. Did the value of the urn change from the time he walked up there to the time afterwards? His knowledge of the value of the urn changed. It was worth the same amount when he treated it lightly as when he was actually changed by it and treated it like it was a priceless gem. When the gospel actually becomes more beautiful to us, the same simple truths of the gospel, that we are sinners, that God is holy, and that Jesus, out of His goodness and mercy, and out of no reason, out of no claim on our own, we have nothing to offer Him. Jesus chooses to die on our behalf. That simple truth, sanctification by grace, is when that simple truth breaks in and it becomes broader, and it's applied more deeply and more profound and wider and more powerful in our lives. What happens in the Christian life is not that, you know, hopefully a year from now you find yourself to be a better person. What I hope happens in your life is a year from now you find out that Jesus was a bigger Savior than you thought. As you mature in your faith, you'll actually develop the ability to see more deeply into your sins and you'll more and more like Paul be confronted with your sinfulness and Paul who says later in life not I was but I am the chief of sinners and as you find out that maybe your condition was actually worse than you initially thought on that night of sweet grace you find out now years after the fact what well, my heart's darker than I thought it was at that point then you realize that Jesus saving work was bigger than you thought at that point See, we grow by His grace, not by our works. It's not about what you can do to make yourself a better person. We are changed when Jesus becomes bigger. Ricky Jones, uh, old RUF campus minister, he's a church planner now, kind of illustrates it for us in this way. He says one of the, one of the, reason, one of the ways that we show we don't understand this principle is because we still think fellowship and evangelism are two different things. And he said, when we're beginning to get the gospel and growing the gospel, we realize fellowship and evangelism are the same thing. And this is his point. Not fellowship just in the sense of hanging out together. That's good. We do that. We're for that in our UF. But he's talking about those intense moments when you need to talk to your roommate, when you need to talk to a friend. And in those moments, you have a serious conversation about some issues in your life. And what a good friend does is they encourage you in places you need to be encouraged and discourage you in places you need to be discouraged. And in those places of discouragement, they call you to Christ and say, man, you've got to repent. You've got to return to Jesus on this. And that is deep and good and sweet fellowship. And that's evangelism. 
that we walk through the gospel again in our, each of our relationships, in our friendships with Christians, in our friendships with unbelievers. They're the same because what we all need is we need the gospel to break into our lives. Some people for the first time, but the rest of us more deeply every day. There are a couple of implications to beginning to let this principle of sanctification by grace work into our lives. And the first one, and they're really just kind of the opposite of the former ones, um, is humility. Uh, instead of being proud, we become humble. Christians grow instead of pride, they grow in humility because pride is all the different ways that you consider yourself to be better than others. And it's the great sin of the church in so many ways. And it reveals just how misguided we are in our understanding of the Christian life. But if we're being sanctified by grace and if we're growing in our understanding of grace, then humility breaks into our lives because you can't see any discernible difference between yourself and the people around you. You can't see any difference between yourself and the people that you are prone to despise, even the people you have good reasons to despise. And you are humbled by the reality of unearned love given to you. And that's why in some ways the question over and over again if we're, if, of whether or not we're really getting sanctification by grace is this. Who do you despise? Who do you despise? What makes you better than them? Being honest about those things is actually going to, going to be the first step in the Christian maturity. The way one pastor defined humility is humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. And that means if the Christian life is one of finding out that our sin is worse than we thought and then finding out that God's holiness is higher than we thought, then, then, then what happens in between is we find out that the Savior we need is bigger than we thought. And getting that means that humility in some ways is going to be the foremost Christian fruit. And what it looks like is instead of despising and running from and coming up with reasons why we're different from people, people who are stuck in sin, people who don't know Jesus, you'll actually instead run to them. And not with a behavior modification system, but with mercy and with love. And our hope and prayer for this group is that the campus community and that your roommates and that your friends and your classmates would not see us reinforcing the kind of retreatist from the world, holier than thou, we're better than you, that embodies so many Christian stereotypes, but rather because the gospel begins to work humility in our lives, that people would see Jesus. A man who had dinner with tax collectors and prostitutes and who had expensive, costly, deeply inconvenient Mercy and compassion, mercy and compassion on messed up people who created their own messes. Sanctification by grace first works humility. The other thing it gives us is actually at the same time confidence. If we cease to find our security and our ability to keep kind of some weird version of the law that we've conjured up, and instead we know that before the throne of God, if we tried to hand God all those things, it would look ridiculous. And so instead, we actually rest in Jesus when He says, if you profess My name, if you confess your sins, you may be saved. That Jesus is the one who secures our relationship, that His Word is trustworthy, that His death does work what He says it will work. 
then you know what? Instead of being fearful, we become confident. And it's this incomprehensible kind of blend of humble confidence. And you're humble because Jesus had to save us, but we're confident because Jesus can and did save his people. This means a couple of things. It means one of the things we can do is receive criticism. If Jesus is your salvation, you have nothing to lose if you're wrong. If you are your salvation, you have everything to lose if you're wrong. This means we can confess sin. If Jesus is our salvation, we know He can cover over all of our iniquity. If we are our salvation, you better be careful about confessing your sin. You better start finding ways to justify it. This means that we don't have to run from the world, but instead we can run into it. If we're responsible for our security, then we've got to retreat from the dirty world because it might get us dirty. But if Jesus is our salvation, if Jesus is our purity... If He's our security, we can go out into the world and we can demonstrate the kindness, we can demonstrate the gentleness and the love that has been shown to us. We don't have to be scared that the world's going to get us because Jesus has the power to hold on to us. Wouldn't the humble confidence that Jesus offers be sweet? And that's why Paul finishes this passage with the next thing and abounding in thanksgiving. Because the first logical reaction to getting that we are not just saved by grace, but we are sustained by, we are grown by, we are made holy, we are sanctified by God's ongoing grace, the fact that He still hasn't given up on us, people who have, who have received justification, who have been justified by God, who claim to know Christ, and yet find ourselves still stuck in so many things, that He continues to have grace in us the first response to that has to be gratitude. Let's pray.